Live from the 607, it's the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour, where we're talking everything movies, TV, comics, and entertainment. Join in the conversation on social media with the hashtag ODPH, because here we go. Welcome to an all-new edition of the ODPH Podcast, better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. What is happening, everybody? Thank you so much for joining us this week. My name is Ken M. Joining me in studio, as always, you know him. He's the co-host. His name is Padawan J. Hello there. Folks, we have a lot to talk about in the land of movies, TV, comics, and more. You are tuned into the entertainment edition of the ODPH. And if you want to interact with us after the show, and I hope you do, Pad, where do they go? ODPHpodcast.com. Right on. You swing on over to the website. You just sign up for all of the social media accounts. You check out the T Public Store. You check out the Patreon link. One tier, $2 a month, and a bonus episode every month at least. Dot, dot, dot. Also, Parlay Points blog section. The classified section where you can find friends of the show, such as 3FN Podcast, Dragon Master Games, and so many more. The directory. Pat, how many providers are we on? 322,000. Sounds about right to me. I lose track because we're on everywhere. And trust me, we get told we hear you on Good Pods. We hear you on Apple Podcasts. We hear you on Spotify. What else can we do for you? Well, drop a five-star review. That always helps the algorithm and gets more people listening to the show. See, it's easy how that works. The music section. So much more. There's a lot going on on the website. So simply swing on over to odphpodcast.com and interact and find out everything and anything that is the ODPH. And also, remember on social media, use the hashtag ODPHpod. Kicking off this edition of the show, though, we have to recap a episode that was really a curveball from what I was expecting. Yeah. And obviously, going into this season, a lot of question marks were surrounding Disney Plus slash Star Wars The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. What exactly could they do to top the two seasons? Where is Pedro Pascal's Din Djarin and Grogu going to do next? Where are they going to go next? There's a lot of questions surrounding them. This season, as it's kicked off on Disney+, Plus, we have an idea where things are heading. Well, we think. We think. But they've done a great job about really keeping the audience guessing. Mm-hmm. And after last week's episode, which I did hear a lot of feedback some fans were not exactly in love with. I understand. And we understand that yeah. because if you listen to last week's episode, we did say... It kind of had a filler vibe to it, mm-hmm. kind of. I'm yeah. not saying it was full-blown fil- filler, Yeah, but it was one of the situations that you're going, okay, they had a carryover from the prior episode, too, and then they did a mini episode inside it. Mm-hmm. So now coming back to the main story, it was really anybody's guess of what we were going to see today. Uh-huh. But there is a lot to discuss with it. So if you are new to the ODPH, first and foremost, thank you for checking us out. We do appreciate it. What we like to do is give a spoiler-free statement about the episode. So we'll give you just our thoughts, quick opinions, so we're not going to ruin anything for you. But we give you a countdown. After said countdown, we go deep diving into spoilers. We don't hold anything back. We timestamp it in the episode so we don't ruin anything for you. But that is the only warnings you get from here on out. So that said, prepare yourself as you need to. Pad Give me your spoiler-free statement on the latest episode of The Mandalorian. I thought it was okay. You know, it wasn't the greatest episode in the world. It wasn't like, oh, there's 30 minutes of my time wasted. And I think that's part of the reason why I thought it was okay. 
if this episode would have been 40 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, close to an hour, I think it, and it would have been the same story and kind of just drawn out a little bit more. I think it would have knocked it down in, in, in a proverbial rating for me. You know, if I had to give it a five out of five or, or whatever, you know, if it was longer, I would have knocked it down. But the fact that it was only 30 minutes, it was kind of in, out, done. Mm-hmm. You know, it got done what it needed to do. It really didn't drag on too long. It didn't really linger anywhere. It didn't need to. So it was okay. It was an interesting filler episode because it did feel like filler to me, but I'm not mad about it. Because where they went with the story, we had a great flashback that really tied a lot of things together that I had questions about. Yep. And then the ending scene, I think, is more of a prelude to what's to come than anybody is realizing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of good that happened in this episode, but I do agree with you. Very short, got in, got out, and it kind of felt like we've seen this before. Yeah. But I'm not mad about it because of the two bookends that I previously mentioned. I thought they carried a lot. So yeah. it's definitely worth a watch, but I would say lower the expectations because there's nothing really earth shattering about this episode, which is surprising considering the creative people that are behind this. I was very surprised that we didn't get a few more surprises. Sure. Considering, but is what is. Sure. Still worth the watch. So that being said, let us go into the spoiler free section of the show. So pad in three, two, one. Give me your thoughts about Chapter 20, titled The Foundling of the Mandalorian Season 3. You know, I thought it was okay. You know, the action sequences were, were good. It was it was fun to see. You know, it was interesting to see kind of just how more developed Grogu's Force abilities are. You know, and to finally see them in action with him, actively trying to use them and not just going accidentally like, whoops, here, you know, here it is. But to see him do more than just push and pull. You know, that was cool to see. It was interesting to see the developments and the continuation of Bo-Katan because I think she's starting to realize what could possibly happen with this because that's why she didn't just, like, up and leave at the first drop of a hat that she had an opportunity to. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, with everything with the flashback to Order 66, which admittedly was a roller coaster for me because I'm like, all right, I know this is coming. We're about to see this again. And I thought we would see, because there was some speculation online because they showed the scene where the you know the Jedi are defending Grogu mm. and and the doors getting like cut open, there was some speculation it was going to be Anakin, you know, and I was really hopeful to see Hayden Christensen as Anakin again. And when it didn't happen, I was kind of like, all right, we're just about to see another like kind of pointless flashback. And then once it developed on, I was like, oh, okay, I'm here for this. Yeah, I think that that was a big selling point for me for this episode because the story is very simplistic. Otherwise, mm-hmm. however, though, what they're doing with Katie Sackhoff's Bo-Katan, I'm all in about. Hell yeah. I'm all in. She has been such a welcome addition as a season regular. Can we say that at this point? Yeah, I think so. That we need a spinoff show with her. Well, so she might not be a series regular, but she's a recurring character. Yeah, that's why I say recurring character, season regular. I will take it wherever we can because she is elevating a lot of scenes that would just be throwaway in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say the show has acted badly or anything like that, but when you have somebody that's bringing that certain X factor to the show and really challenging the audience with what they're doing, Uh I think that that's just such a benefit, especially when you're now into a season three, going into a season four, arguably, and so forth. You really need to keep 
your content fresh for people to check it out and be very invested in. Mm-hmm. Sackhoff's Bo-Katan is doing this. Yeah. Be, and it's very subtle, but it's still working to balance out because as we're seeing, the groundwork is getting laid for an eventual showdown between her and Darjan. Mm-hmm. I think so. And if anybody's not seeing that, I'm sorry. <laughs> I will set this up when we get to that scene in particular. But in the meantime, we go to the Mandalorian base, if you will. Yeah, they're uh, home away from home. Yes, where the refuge is, where a lot of the Mandalorians have been underground and hiding since the fall of Mandalore. Yep. And we do see an interesting setup where Grogu is now getting trained in the ways of the Mandalore. And it is a trial by combat, so to mm-hmm. speak, Yeah. that is a fun episode. It's, it's a fun moment, I should yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. That Mandalorian uh, Din Djarin has to basically say, yes, I'm co-signing on him as his legal guardian yeah. to partake in this. Uh, it's, it's fine. He can, he can handle himself. Yeah. So he winds up getting into a uh, sparring session, if yeah. you will, yeah. with a young Mandalorian. Yeah. Another another kid who has taken the creed and has his helmet on and even brings up, they're like, oh, he's not even wearing a helmet. And and. Uh, you know, the Mandalorian goes, well, yeah, because he's not old enough to take the creed yet, so therefore he doesn't need to, idiot. Yeah, it, it's just a little fun ex- explanation of the Mandalorian code. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like how they're, you know, giving you the little background about that, because we yeah. really don't know a lot, per no. se, in, in comparison no. to other elements of Star Wars. So seeing the Mandalorian code, I think, is really interesting to see how they play out, and especially with the training session going on, which yeah. is not like a Rocky montage by any means. Thank God. No, but you do see the standoff, and they're allowed to have their little uh, blasters, like if a ri- you will. Well, they get to choose what weapon they use, and so I'm sure it could be hand-to-hand combat. It could be some form of sword, some form of pikes, some form of, you know, like whatever. Mm-hmm. But because this kid has admittedly some battle experience, it's not much. You know, he's got some training. He decides to go, well, let me use the one thing this toddler arguably can't use let me let me have, use a blaster yeah completely under you know making the mistake of underestimating his his opponent you know and he gets the quick one up on him twice and where the mandalorian finally looks at him at, at grogu and goes listen hey i know what you can do it'll be fine show us what you can do yeah so it plays out in a very fun moment against uh grogu's the, better judgment so to speak yeah because Ragnar Vizlan, mm-hmm. or Vizla, 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 excuse me for that, uh, has a two to one, two to nothing advantage with it. In a best of three. Yes. And you see that the corner advice that Grogu is getting from Dinjarin is not exactly uh, motivational. Yeah. It's basically, you know what you're doing. You're on your own, kid. You got to figure this I'm out. I'm not here to save you. Nope. So when the final shot by Ragnar is coming, Grogu does this. Matrix-esque flip. He uses the force. He jumps over him. Yeah, he jumps over him and winds up landing three shots right in a row to win three to two. Yeah, so he jumps forward over him but lands behind him. The kid turns around, you know, confused as all hell because the two previous shots, he didn't move. Mm -hmm. And then Grogu leaps backwards, lands in front of the kid and gets three shots off right in a row. And the person judging, which I think it might have been Ragnar's father, uh, I think was judging the the event goes up three to three to three to two. Uh, the child wins. Yeah. So this is an interesting play out that happens that Grogu is now embracing the ways of the Mandalorian mm-hmm. and he does not have a lot of time to celebrate. No, 
Because, Pad, what happens here? So Ragnar goes off to sulk, as one does when you just got your ass handed to you by a 52-year-old toddler. Uh, and he goes, kind of goes off to the side. He starts kicking some rocks. He's all pissy and moany. Uh, and then some animal-looking raptor, flying dinosaur-looking thing comes flying out of nowhere, picks him out of the, picks him off the ground, and takes off for a little bit of a mid uh, mid afternoon snack. Yeah, a pterodactyl on steroids. That's what it looked like. Yeah, to put it mildly, pterodactyl mixed with like a vulture or something. Yeah, it, it's a huge creature that starts flying away with the young child. Yep. You see the Mandalorians. Every uh, single one of them. Yeah, fly after him with the jetpack. Yep. It's a cool action sequence. Not gonna lie about that. Well, first they start firing at him. Yeah. And then the one goes, "No, don't. You'll you could potentially kill the kid." We got to go after him. So that's when Mandalorian and uh, Ragnar's father mm-hmm. uh, go after him with the jetpack. But the issue they run into is, well, that thing can fly pretty fast and pretty pretty far, and the jetpacks only have so much fuel. And there's one thing I've noticed this season too: they they're using the same kind of camera shot when they're flying. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the through the fish lens a little bit. Yeah, we didn't see it as much during this sequence, but it did point out yeah. uh, a couple times that I'm going. This must be something they're trying to do with the show to mm-hmm. make it stand out a little bit. Could be. I mean, it's not the worst thing ever, no. but it's just kind of like, all right, interesting take on the cinematography, but I'm here for it. So you do see that the creature takes away the young child, mm-hmm. and now there's a hunting party going on because Bo-Katan, being the smartest one in the whole camp. Apparently. Decides, I, you know what? <laughs> I'm not flying with my jetpack. I'm getting in my ship. Yeah. Like, there's... like. The Mandalorian's got his Naboo Starfighter not far off. Presumably not much time has passed. You know, so he goes after with a jetpack and she just goes, Yeah, I'm just gonna get my ship. Yeah. Why put why put in all the effort? I can do this the easy way. Seriously, Dinjarin is just getting by on sheer luck at this point. I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't think he's the badass we all think he's supposed to be. Yeah. Like he's no Boba Fett, I mean, let's be honest about that. True. But he is just not exactly striking me as the most intelligent uh, wielder of the dark saber that they could possibly find. Pokatan has definitely sold me on that case because mm-hmm. she winds up tra- basically tracking down the yeah. the pterodactyl. We'll just we'll just call it a pterodactyl. We'll just call it a pterodactyl at the nest area yeah. where the young child is allegedly where they being kept th- where they think it's being yeah. kept. So she comes back with this information and says, "Yeah, we can go get them." And the armorer is just sitting there going, well, we might need to you know, have this planned out, and you're going to need to be smart about this because you can't go with weapons. You're going to basically have to have your party form and camp out. Right, because I think the thing the armor brings up is like, hey, you're going to have to do this kind of quietly because otherwise, one, the thing's going to just take off with the kid and go to another nest it has someplace on the planet, or B, that's the worst option. It's going to kill him. Yeah. So they plan this out very smartly, I will say that. Yeah, yeah. So you see this group go away. And then we have Grogu under the care of the armor. Hey, somebody's got a babysit. Right. And then the armor is now making Grogu some armor. Kind of, yeah. I mean, Pat, do you want to break this scene down a little bit? Yeah, so the armor is like just while babysitting the kid and takes him back and starts talking, it's kind of giving like a history lesson or, or like a theology lesson or something. And just about the Mandalorians and what the metal means and how it's shaped to fit the person and everything it means about. But while the armor is doing this, you know, the voice from the armor kind of fades in the background and Grogu gets distracted by the hammering of the metal. 
and it's reminding Grogu of Order 66. Yes. And he's and he flashes back to Order 66 where he was a, just a baby, you know, in in the temple being defended by a group of Jedi, you know, and the door gets cut open and this is the scene we saw in the trailer. Uh, the door gets cut open, and instead of Anakin walking through, as everyone thought, it's a group of clone troopers. You know, and the, and the uh, clone troopers start taking on the Jedi. Grogu escapes down an elevator uh, while all the Jedi there are killed. Uh, and meanwhile, he so then he comes out of the elevator, and he runs into another Jedi master uh, by the name of K- uh, Kelleran Beck. Uh, and if this gentleman looked a little familiar, uh, that is because it's Ahmed Best who played uh, Jar Jar Binks in the prequels. I got to admit, I freaked out. I did, too. I was like, this dude looks familiar. And then it hit me. I'm like, oh, wait, that's Ahmed. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I will say this. I think if if you're new to the show, you don't understand how many times I have absolutely ripped apart Jar Jar Binks. Sure. I cannot stand the character. Sure. And if you know me on social media, trust me, Jar Jar comes up quite often. And you you see my angry reaction to it. Sure. My anger is no bounds. I will say this. I love seeing Ahmed Best come out on as a Jedi. I'll say the redemption arc he's getting is nothing short of amazing because he did an interview with Wired Magazine in 2017 where he, and I'm reading from an article on IGN.com. Uh, he said in that interview, quote, I had death threats through the internet, best told Wired in 2017. I had people come to me and say, you destroyed my childhood. That's difficult for a 25 year old to hear. That backlash took a heavy psychological toll on Best. The actor posted a heartfelt message on Twitter in 2018, revealing he struggled with suicidal thoughts during that dark period. Quote, 20 years next year, I faced a media backlash that still affects my career today. This was the place, uh, this was the place I almost ended my life. It's still hard to talk about. I survived, and now this little guy, uh, referring to his son, uh, is my gift for survival. Would this be a good story for my solo show? Let me know. Close quote. So the fact that he's gone from like being vilified by fans far and wide, you know, for let's face it, is he responsible for the writing? Is he responsible for how goofy the character is? No, he's given a character. He's given a description and, and how he should portray it, you know, but to see this redemption arc he's getting and like just the love he's getting, I love to see it. I, I absolutely do too. Like I say, my thing has always been about the writing of the character. Sure. Pad can attest to this. Sure. It's never been against him personally. So the fact we got to see him in this redemption arc, I love this. Yeah. I was super excited about it because, like I say, once I realized, like, holy crap. Uh-huh. It's him. It's yeah. on it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I literally just freaked out. And I'm like, oh, good. They're they're giving him something. Not only does he wield the lightsaber, he fucking dual wields lightsabers. Oh, God, yeah. No, which he, is the most badass thing you can do. Absolutely. So he's doing this dual wielding badass lightsaber fighting with the stormtroopers, and he is laying them to waste. Yeah, too. he is. And just such an awesome sequence yeah. of events as he's fighting his way through the Jedi Temple trying to get Grogu out of there. Yep. And even when they have the crazy escape, oh too. Oh, my God. I mean, Pat, break this scene down. Yeah, so he escapes down an elevator with Grogu and then escapes to an exterior like landing pad something on the Jedi Temple. And he fights off another group of clone troopers. And then, you know, the, one of them came in on a speeder bike. And so he hops on the speeder bike and Grogu attaches to the sidecar. Uh, and they, they take off, and they're flying through Coruscant, and there's an awesome scene, shot of the Jedi Temple in the background burning, mm-hmm. which is just awesome to see. Um, you know, so they're flying through the sky, and then they send uh, the the land 
transports. I forget what they're called. Uh, but the the Je- the Jedi uh, transports after them, and they start firing. At, they start firing at them. They hit, end up hitting the engine, but they somehow manage to kind of crash land on a landing pad where he no he knows uh, some sympathetic members from. And and this tipped me off to who when I saw the ship. This tipped me off to who it was because I'm like, holy shit, it's the same ship Padme used in uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. This is the this is Naboo. You know, so he he meets up with some sympathetic members from the Naboo armed forces who sounds like they were expecting more. Yeah. Because one of them says something to the effect of, and I can't remember what exactly he says, but he says something to the effect of, where's the rest? Mm -hmm. And he says... There are none. There are none. Yeah. And so the two of them, and so at that point, the stormtroopers, clone troopers show up again and start firing at the armed forces and then also at uh, Kellen Beck. Keller and back and Grogu and and the one sold the one's uh, armed guard goes get get on the ship go you know and so uh, Master Keller and back and Grogu get on the ship while the armed forces are fighting the clone troopers on the landing pad as the ship takes off into space all the meanwhile it's being chased it's being uh, chased after by another republic another two republic starfighters mm-hmm. you know pre- precursors to the tie fighters they even had the sound effect yeah uh, you know into space where they get out of the or they get out of the planet's gravity well uh, and engage the hyperdrive and take off into where we don't know no we don't know but if they wind up doing a solo episode explaining about uh, Kellerin, I'd be my guess. I'm okay with this. In fact, I think maybe they should try doing those one shots, a like Marvel does with sure. Werewolf by Night. Sure. I think that would help a lot with certain aspects they want to do in the stories that we don't get so much of a filler break. But like I say, I was not angry about this at all. There was no, no. anger involved with this. No anger whatsoever no. of seeing this sequence played out. This was my favorite part of this episode, to be honest oh, with you. absolutely. And like I say, I need to see more Keller and Beck. If they want to even just do an anthology series. Sure. Like, why not? Sure. This I, works. I could see it. Yeah, it works out completely perfect because it all goes back to Grogu and the mystery behind him. And we really haven't delved into what no. happened and how he got from Order 66 to the Mandalorian episode one. Right. There's still a lot of story there's a, there's there. There's a lot of story there. We're talking at least, and this is just me trying to remember this timeline and everything off the top of my head. So between episodes six and where this is, that's at least 10 years. We're looking at at least 30, 40 years. Yeah. So give or take, we got some time to talk that story, but it all goes back to Grogu now getting accepted to the Mandalorian ways Mm -hmm. and you get that little break, but then the armor presents Grogu with something special. Yeah. Pad, what is presented? It, I, you know, I'm not entirely sure what this is to be honest. Yeah. It's kind of like a weird, it's like a coin covering something. It's almost like an armor centerpiece. Yeah. And I, cause it obviously would not fit on his shoulders because of how small he is, but it's a weird, like I say, armor centerpiece. Kind of yeah. like, and think about with Tony Stark and the reactor core for mm-hmm. the Iron Man. Like, there's always the circle in the middle of Iron Man, no matter what suit he wears, right? Or, or triangle and some of the other suits. It's something like that mm-hmm. with a symbol on it too. It, uh, it's the mud. It's the mudhorn sigil. It's uh, it's uh, Mandalorian's the the Mandalorian's uh, sigil. Okay. It, it's the sigil of uh, Clan Jaren or whatever. Okay, all right. That's, that's what, what it is. It's, yeah. It took me a second. Okay, thank you for clarifying that because 
it took me a second to think. Like I go, I know I've seen that before, but I can't place yeah. where. Yeah, it's the it's the same sigil Din Jaren uh, uses. Okay, well that makes a lot of sense. Then the story shifts back though to the rescue party, mm-hmm. and you do see how they camp out the night before, and they do reveal something I thought was interesting. Yeah, when they have to eat. Oh yeah, everybody separates. Yeah, Bo Bo-Katan wondered this because she knows like well, and and at this point, you remember last season she was kind of. You know, against the whole, oh, yeah, you're the weird ones who, who other other uh, race who, like, don't like to take their helmets off. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're the ones who don't like it. You know, like, it got brought up a couple times. And it got brought up, you know, a little bit this season prior to this episode. Now she's all in about it because she's she's been, you know, invited into the into the group. She's helping to save the kid. And she's wondering, and admittedly, probably because she's hungry. But the fact she's on board with this and she's even asking, what do we do for eating? You know, oh, because, well, we can't take the helmet off, you know, and and that's when he explains, oh, we get the food and we go off into our own separate areas where no one can see and we take our helmets off. See, this is the groundwork I was talking about earlier. Uh Uh-huh. Because she is infiltrating these ranks to take over. Mm-hmm. And don't even think that this is not what the scheme is going down. Because you got to remember, she had a, a group of forces, uh-huh. but they've all left because she didn't have the dark saber, and they're all off being mercenaries. Yeah. And here is a group that she is working her way in and winning their favor and winning their trust, and she uh, is going to be willing to listen to her. Yeah, the end game is always the dark saber. Don't don't think that that has been a forgotten plot point. And you see now that she's embracing the ways of the Mandalorians of this group here. Mm-hmm. Like I say, the their ways are a lot different than her group had. And now I think that she's buying in. But I think, though, there is some kind of connection, and we'll get to this at the end of the episode, where she is now almost thinking she might be the chosen one for the group. Could be. Maybe. But like I said, I'll tie that that statement in a little later in the segment. Mm -hmm. But you do see them have a meal, and then the next day they make the break for the nest. (laughs) With their ascension cables. Yeah. Why, Pad? Reasons. Reasons. Well, they got to be quiet. They got to be stealthy. Jetpacks are loud. Right. But you can also hear the Mission Impossible theme song going on during the sequence. I need that edit. Somebody internet work on it. Yeah. So they wind up sneaking into the nest, and mm-hmm. they do find that the pterodactyl has not one, not two, but three baby. Well, this is after this is after like they want to play it safe, and like we don't know where this thing is. It's early in the morning. This thing could be sl- somewhere sleeping up here. And Ragnar Vizsla's father goes, "We can't wait. I can't do. You know, I can't sit here and just wait and try to figure out and plan this out strategically. That's my son." So he charges headfirst into the middle of this fucking nest that is bigger than him. Mm-hmm. And because one of one of the Mandalorians, I think it might have been Dinjarin, uses uh, like this heat sensor uh, setting on his, on his helmet and sees this grouping of, of body heat in a portion in a portion of the nest. And he goes, yeah, that's about the size of, of, of a kid. So it looks like he's over there. So Ragnar's father runs in there. And he's and he's just immediately starts telling Ragnar, Ragnar, where are you? And you get one, two, three baby heads. Bob. Yeah. And at that point, I'm going, well, of course, this thing has kids. Of course. Yeah. You knew they were going to tie something in like this. Like that was the only telegraph thing about this yeah. episode. I really felt. But you do see that obviously when the mother pterodactyl sees something's up. Yeah, wasn't far behind. Was not far behind. Winds up scooping up Paz. 
mm-hmm. in, in her mouth and taking the kid away yeah. in her claws. Yeah. And thus we have another aerial chase going on, mm-hmm. which this one ends a lot differently because of Bo-Katan mm-hmm. and the play calling just in midair. Yeah. She winds up making a dramatic save of the kid when he's dropped, even though she does lose one of her arm plates. Yep. And that will come into play later. Mm-hmm. But you do see that the rest of the Mandalorian hunting party winds up taking down the pterodactyl mm-hmm. in very dramatic fashion. Like yeah. I say, they didn't really hold back on the action for this sequence. So, like they I say, they rarely do. No, they rarely do. But you could definitely see, like, as one point, Din Djarin is stabbing the thing right in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, it is what it is, folks. At this point, uh, Frank Castle's coming to the MCU. So. You know, all bets are off on that. You just got to be very careful with who you're watching with mm-hmm. at this stage because they do have the ratings up, but still. Because you start hearing him go to town. Like, he did not just hit that thing once. Nope. No, that was massive shots with that blade. I digress. They wind up saving the day. The pterodactyl falls into the uh, ocean, mm-hmm. albeit though it's eaten by another large alligator-esque creature. <sighs> to quote... Uh, Liam Neeson, a.k.a. Qui-Gon Jinn from The Phantom Menace. There's always a bigger fish. Yep. And you see the pterodactyl is destroyed. (laughs) There ain't nothing left of that thing. Nothing. Uh, There's no no Darth Maul coming back from that one. No. But this is all due to Bo-Katan and and Din Djarin, Mm -hmm. who return to the base uh, as heroes. Yeah. And the only qualm I had with this is, how big is Bo-Katan's ship? Big enough. Good God bigger on the inside yeah it's it's a it's a it's a star wars tardis folks <laughs> and seriously it's a tardis if you don't know what a tardis it, is doctor who and they'll say fa- it all as far as i know the only part you can use is like that middle part between the two wings yeah so it must be real big yeah, seriously it's a tardis let's let's just define it yeah there is a crossover yeah we have now established it doctor who is eventually wound up in the star wars universe yeah i mean if it was something like the size of like the falcon you know, I'd be like, okay, I can buy it. But right. It's it's not Millennium Falcon sized. No, this normal size ship flies in. You do see that father and son come off first. Yep. Then you see Bo-Katan come out with, with the three babies. With the three babies right behind <laughs> her, and basically tells the armor, "You have some more people to train." Mm-hmm. And they end that portion of the episode on a high note. Mm-hmm. And one, everybody is now fully embraced in or, uh, Bo-Katan. Yep. She has definitely climbed through the ranks of this Mandalorian group. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the ending, the final act, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the armorer is indebted for her sa- saving a foundling mm-hmm. and wants to make her a piece of Mandalorian armor. Yep. Or replace the piece she lost. Yes. So while she's messing around with what kind of steel pad? Uh, Beskar. Yes. The, she is enamored, and this is Bo-Katan, mm-hmm. with the fixture of the Mythosaurus. Mm-hmm. The, the creature that she saw mm-hmm. in the living waters mm-hmm. on Mandalore. Mm-hmm. And as they're going back and forth about just their small talk, the armorer is making the design, and Bo-Katan just pipes up, and she said, would it be out of place if I wanted the Mythosaurus on my arm? Mm-hmm. And the armor doesn't really think anything of it. She's just kind of like, yeah, sure. She's like, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a common thing for a lot of Mandalorians. It's, sure. it's their universal symbol. Yeah, so this is nothing that really throws her off. But I love how the camera angle is shot because you can see, like, as your Bo-Katan's eyes, you're just, like, 
fixed on it, mm-hmm. like almost to a point of like a hypnotic level. Mm-hmm. And you see that they make this phenomenal piece of Beskar that has that symbol on it yep. and is now embedded into her armor plate, and it's put on. And the during this time, Bokatan is telling the armor, I, I saw one. I saw one. Whoa. I saw. They're not supposed to be around anymore. Where did you see one? Yeah. Beneath the living waters on Mandalore. Yeah, and the armorer is basically like... Yeah, no, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, whatever. Like, okay, this is the way. Bye-bye. And Bo-Katan is like, no, I have seen one. And she's just getting brushed off. Mm-hmm. And it kind of ends with bo just staring there at the mythosaur on the wall. Mm-hmm. So this is why I say, as the, as the show ends, uh-huh. Bo-Katan is getting ready to take over, and I think that she feels whatever connection she made underwater... Yep. With this creature. Yep. And the creature allowed her to live because mm-hmm. it could have easily have eaten her alive. Mm-hmm. There's this weird sense of like, this is my destiny. I am the one that's meant to rule the Mandalorians. Let's not forget the story she told Din, where it was about how the first person to settle on Mandalore ended up, you know, uniting all the people because they rode one. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, they ain't telling that story just for a fun filler. No. You know, I'm going to bet that by the end of this series, well, end of this season, you know, they're going to end up back, you know, the final battle or whatever it is is going to take place on Mandalore. Yeah, they're going back to Mandalore. They're going That's back, a no-brainer. They're, they're going back to Mandalore. This thing's going to make an appearance, and she's going to be riding atop of it, wielding the Darksaber. And she will finally unite all of the Mandalorians uh, beneath her. Yeah. And it's going to be the most badass piece of cinematography you've seen in Star Wars in quite some time. I agree. I, I think that's the only way it can end is she's getting the dark saber one way or another. Oh, she is. And I think that this if this spins off into her own show, like listen, I'm here for it. The work that Katie Sackhoff has done, like I say, it is always tricky when actors are trying to work underneath masks mm-hmm. and armor, as we've seen, because mm-hmm. you can't do normal body language. Well, I mean, at least in, in her instance, though, she's got experience with this because the character didn't originate in the live action. The character originated in uh, Clone Wars, right. in, in animation. So she's got this experience with, you know, acting and voice acting and whatnot and, like, not having to use her facial, expe- facial expressions. Right, but it, it's it's paying off tenfold here. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the one point I'm trying to make with this. She has embraced this and made that transition over that this character has now become such a vital part of the show mm-hmm. that you also feel like, and this is not a slight against Pedro Pascal by any means. Right. But it's almost like he's become a side character. For a couple episodes, yeah. Right, but, and and it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's true. Yeah. That he went from being this ruthless bounty hunter to now... He's a stumbling, go lucky mm-hmm. hero. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it's a weird, you know, change of events, and I'm not sure how I exactly feel about it because I think at the end, I'm not saying he's going to get killed off by any means. No, but it's like I think that he's now making a transition to let other people run with the ball here. His character, that is. Well, and I think that's a smart thing for for John Favreau, Filoni, and, and the powers that be. That like, hey, listen. You can only tell so many stories with this one character. Eventually, you have to spin off other characters into other shows. Yeah, and, and these episodes where he's not exactly the main focus could be a kind of like a test pilot for see how fans react to see. Okay, we would like to do a Bo-Katan series mm. if, assuming Katie Sackhoff is interested in doing it, I and, think that wants to do it more than yes right now. But we have to see if the fans would be willing to see that. You know, we don't want to blow all this money, all this time, all this effort, and something that's not going to get watched. 
You know, so that's what some of these episodes might be. The crazier thing for me is just seeing the transformation because I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, she was never a popular character. No, I know she was a popular character. Oh, sure. But just seeing where she's come from Clone Wars, you know, and being this character that I thought was cool. I'm like, oh, it's, it's Mandalorian. This is cool. You know, to I wasn't exactly clamoring for Bo-Katan in live action just because to that point I didn't know how you would do it because I'd never seen it done in Star Wars oh, sure. before. We'd seen the reverse with live action to animated, but never animated the live action. But having seen the work she's done, it's awesome to see. Yeah, I'm absolutely blown away by it. And I think, like, overall, solid episode. Yeah. And like I say, for being a filler episode, because, I mean, honestly, it was. Kind of. They laid some groundwork for some things coming down yeah, yeah. the road that I'm excited to see. I love the flashback to Order 66. And yeah. listen, seeing Keller and Beck, that was the highlight for me because obviously knowing Ahmed Best as Jar Jar Binks, getting this redemption arc mm-hmm. for the Star Wars universe fans. Yeah, yeah. And obviously with all the crap that he has personally taken, which was bullshit, oh, because yeah. that's strictly on the writing of said character. And it's like we talked about in wrestling too, like mm-hmm. to just kind of go into Jar Jar Binks was forced to be a likable character. Yeah. It wasn't organic. Yeah. And that's why there were so many people that didn't like him. And me, I've always said, well, he's responsible for the fall of the Jedi's because why would you put him in charge? You're, and, and, you're not and, wrong. Like I said, the empire knew what they're doing day one. So, you know, they're the smartest people in the room. Yeah. How you do. But I love how they came back with him as Kelleran. They allowed him to be a badass Jedi. Yeah. I want to see more, even if it's like one episode spinoff. Like one thing I think that they should be doing with the Star Wars universe on Disney Plus, do an anthology show. Sure. Like, well, better than Tales of the Walking Dead. Yeah. You're, you know, like I say, give, give a character two episodes and let him run with well, it. Well, they kind of did with anima- animation uh, Tales of the Jedi, you know, which was fairly right. popular and did fairly well. But they could try something with that uh, with live action. I know I know Liam Neeson has said he wants to play Qui-Gon Jinn again. Yeah. You know, so, you know, Liam Neeson, uh, I think, I can't remember if Qui-Gon was ever a master or not. I know he was a knight. He might have been a master. But, like, presumably him and Keller and Beck could have been around at the same time. Have some missions with Liam Neeson and Ahmed Best because, hey, fun Phantom Menace reunion. Why not? Fun Phantom Menace reunion. Yeah. Have them go around and solve some planetary dispute or something. Yeah, you you can definitely play around with the vast (laughs) amount of characters. Have have the Jedi on Yavin. Explain why Yavin 4 is uninhabited as far as we saw. Yeah, like I say, you don't have to spend a lot of money on the show. You don't have to go crazy with a budget. But a two-episode spinoff, like, you know, and just keep it anthology style. Yeah. Make a ton of money, get a ton of viewers. Boom, boom, everybody wins. Yeah. Pat, final thoughts on the episode. I uh, love the episode. Well, I didn't love the episode. I thought it was good. You know, the action sequences were, were fun. You know, seeing Ahmed Best back was awesome. And then just some of the groundwork they're laying uh, for stuff going forward is super exciting. Also super exciting, I looked at who's directing next week's episode. A gentleman by the name of Peter Ramsey, uh, who you might know, uh, directed a certain movie called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Hmm. Yeah, he's directing hmm. next, next week's episode, so that could be very interesting. Yeah, definitely excited to see about this. And this was Carl Weathers' episode this yeah. week, cha- Chapter 20, with him and Filoni and Favreau writing. Yeah. Kind of weird that it was a filler episode. Yeah. Not going to lie, but it's still worth the watch nevertheless. So that being said, hit us up on that hashtag, hashtag ODPHpod. What is your thoughts about Star Wars, Disney+, Plus, The Mandalorian, Chapter 20, The Foundling of Season 3? That is a mouthful, folks. 
Trust me. But what's your thoughts? Did you love it? Did you hate it? And why? Let's talk about it, shall we? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anthony from They Called Us a Movie, inviting you to join us on a journey through the B-movies, bargain bins, and box office disasters of movie history. Each week, we put a movie under the microscope to try to figure out what went wrong, what went right, and what went somewhere in between. Check us out wherever you get your podcast by searching They Called Us a Movie and find us on Twitter and Instagram at TicTampod. That's T-C-T-A-M-Pod. They Called Us a Movie, testing the strength of friendships, one terrible movie at a time. Coming back for another segment on this edition of the ODPH Podcast, and there's one bright spot on the CW DC Comics lineup right now. Gotham Knights. Oh, in some people's hearts, yes. And listen, if, you, if you're a fan of the show... By all means, you do as you do. I jump ship. I can't go back. That's just me personally. Can't say I blame you. But I do know some people that actually really like the show. And, like, listen, I'm not hating on you for that. I know they listen, and I'm not going to shout you guys out because that's your deal. You guys want to just check them out on social media? Like, people have been posting some positive things. A lot has been very polarizing with that show. I'm on the other side of the fence personally. But, like I say, love what you love. And that's why we love talking about the bright spot of the DC universe on CW right now. Mm-hmm. And, Pat, what is that show? Superman and Lois. That's right. Tyler Hoechlin and Elizabeth Tullock came back with season three of a long-awaited show showing how the Kents are adjusting to life in Smallville, but yet the superhero life has not escaped them. Mm-hmm. Season three is now two episodes deep and going in some very interesting directions, balancing out uh, a lot of surprise characters, especially yeah. one villain that... I was not expecting to see, and quite frankly, threw me for a loop when it was in episode one. So they're doing a lot of great things on the show, and it really reminds you if you've become, I don't know, disenfranchised for whatever reason with Clark Kent and Superman for whatever reason, Snyderverse or or, or whatever Or even if the the Arrowverse wasn't your cup of tea. Right. There's a lot of reasons why, and like I always say, I know a lot of people say, well, I like the grim version from the Snyderverse. That's, That's my Superman. Okay, cool. Do you? But I think for a majority of fans, we all know him as Truth, Justice, and a Better Tomorrow. This show reminds us of that and the happy, optimistic, hopeful Superman. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's connecting with a lot of fans right now. It's been a it's been a nonstop win thus far, and now going into episode two, a lot of question marks about where we're exactly going after last week's cliffhanger. So now we've got a lot of answers and a lot more questions. Thank you that I think need to get answered. So, Pad, let's do it how we always do it. Spoiler-free statement about, quote-unquote, Uncontrollable Forces, Episode 2 of Superman and Lois. Also got a note, directed by Elizabeth Henstridge. Yes. uh, From Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. No, I thought the episode was good. You know, a little telegraphed in certain aspects, you know, especially at the start. I kind of figured out what was going on before they even said it, and they took most of the episode before they would officially confirm what we thought was going on was going on, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But otherwise, the episode was... Mostly forgettable. You know, there were there was some portions of the storyline where I was like, I, I get why we're doing this, but I don't really care. You know, so it was I, I feel like they should have left the mystery and intrigue for maybe later in the episode mm-hmm. because the fact they left they opened the start with it and then left it as like this dangling little chew toy for a pet that like they kept pulling up before they would tell us, uh, they, you know, that's kind of what I was waiting for the entire episode. And so the other stuff kind of fell by the wayside for me. Mm-hmm. I am locked into the intergang storyline, which I don't feel is a spoiler because if you read the comics, you understand who it is. If not, 
you are getting an idea of why this group is so impactful to Superman himself. So that said, I really like that aspect of this show. However, though, I thought they spent a little too much time on some old storylines that I just don't get as much as invested in. Mm -hmm. But I think for what they did, it was a great episode for when they hit their home runs. And when they hit some foul balls, I mean, they were really following out of the stadium. Mm -hmm. But it is what it is. It still didn't make me want to tune out the episode, nevertheless. Even at the parts where I'm just like, we've been down this road before. We don't need to keep going down here. Mm-hmm. These characters deserve something else, maybe something a little more. I still felt this was solid enough that, okay, I like where we're going. And then especially the stuff involving intergang. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm here for. So that being said, Pad, three, two, one. Pad, what did you think about the episode? Like I said, I, I thought it was an okay episode, you know, not necessarily a waste of my time, and I didn't regret watching it at the end, but I wasn't exactly like, oh, yes, fantastic episode, because like I said, the little tease at the start was something, we know something had gone wrong with Lois, wasn't a pregnancy, was something else, and just the way the episode started mm-hmm. with the somber music and the lack of vo- voices, you know, there was no spoken dialogue being heard, they were speaking, but, you know, they cut the audio out. You know, it was pretty telegraphed at that point what was going on. It was just a matter of, okay, what form is it going to be? Yeah. You know, so then it became a game of, okay, how long are they going to wait to tell us this? And it wasn't until, God, 45 minutes into the hour or or something like that they they finally decided to tell us. And all the meanwhile, I'm just sitting there going, all right, tell us what it is. What's going on? How are we going to handle this? How are how are they going to how's the family going to react to this? And and I agree with you. I like the inner gang stuff and I like the stuff that was going on when Clark and Lois went to Metropolis. Mm-hmm. When the kids went to Metropolis, I didn't really care. I'm right there with you. And I want to stress this. This is nothing against the actors. No. This really is not. But we're now two and two episodes in. Or two seasons, two episodes. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And literally, can we do something else with Sarah and Jordan? I'll say that it's been two seasons, two full seasons of them. Will they, won't they, will they, won't they, you know, back and forth, teenage love drama. And like you said, we're two episodes into season three. Shit or get off the pot. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. This it's now gotten to a point where it's just like. (sighs) This is that's my reaction every time I see it. This is reminding me of Smallville. You know, with with Tom Welling and Michael Rosenbaum and all that, where where it was like six seasons or five or six seasons before spoiler alert, but it's 20 years at this point. So bite me, (laughs) you know, but it was five or six seasons before Clark and Lana got together. Yeah. And before Lana found out his secret and it was it was literally five or six years of, well, they won't they. Oh, it almost happened. Oh, she found out. But because of some time travel bullshit, you know, she forgot. Because of, you know, this or that. And, like, I was fine with it then because I was 20 years younger and I was in that target age group for, for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't care for it now. You know, I, I don't have the time or the willingness to, like, sit there and watch a show for five or six years and a will they, won't they. No, I'm not saying you have to burn through the entire relationship in the span of, like, three episodes. But they've been together and they've known each other for three Three years now. Come on. Yeah, it's just gotten to a point that it's like, okay, 
what are we doing here? Yeah. And honestly, it's and I, I, I want to really stress this too. This is nothing against Alex Garfin and Indy Navarrete. It's just the writing that they do for these two characters when they are doing the will they won't they. Uh-huh. It's ran its course. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, we want to be together, but we don't want to be together. We want to be friends, but oh, we, none of us can express our feelings. Oh, we're at the same party. We're going to look at each other, but we're not going to say anything. Yeah. And Come I, on. And I, under, I understand they're teenagers. I get that. But this is the norm for those two characters. And now that you're tying in Taylor Buck's Natalie Irons and Michael Bishop's Jonathan Kent, into this mess, I just feel like you can do something else with these characters mm-hmm. and really let them shine. Like, for example, episode one of season three, mm-hmm. we had General Lane trying to recruit Natalie Irons to yeah. the, the DOD. DOD. Yeah. Okay, that's something different. Okay, yeah. you know, why are we not trying to do something like that with Sarah? instead of just having her just go back and forth with, with Jordan the entire time. And, and I can understand, and I can kind of look away and look past the will they, won't they for the first two seasons, because for two seasons, Sarah didn't know. Yeah. You know, and, and Jordan was having to play the, the oh, I got to hide my powers, she can't know, yada, yada, yada. At this point, she knows. I mean, there's a scene in this episode where he flies and lands in front of her and shows him freezing a car. Yeah. He, she knows. There's no excuse for the oh I can't be with her because I'm not going to be around enough because I got to save this I got she knows she understands yeah it's already there. Like, there there's no excuse for the oh will they won't they yeah I'm sorry this stage is done so that's why when they kicked off with this episode and they really played into this early too like that's mm-hmm. the one thing that really drives me nuts yeah because we get told okay. The school is shut down for a week because of the because of the mold, the mold issue that they mentioned right. in the first episode. OK, fine. And then it's all about like, OK, what are they going to do now? And then Natalie is trying to talk to somebody. Right. Well, because the kids are like, oh, hey, we go off. And, and I think it, Clark is like, well, yeah, you're off for a week, but it's not, you know, it's not spring break. You're mm-hmm. off for a week because the school's closed. You still have schoolwork to do. Yeah. You know, so the parents are trying to do the responsible thing and get them to do their homework and, and keep up on their studies and their grades. And the kids are like, party! Woo! Yeah. So, like I say, Natalie is just trying to get away from the incident with General Lane trying to recruit her. She's confiding in Sarah, and they wind up talking about this party in Metropolis. Well, because Sarah wants to be friends with her because Sarah now knows yeah. everything. Which is cool. I, I like this. I you like know, this. Sarah wants to get to be friends uh, with Natalie and and starts asking her questions about her other world, you know, the other Earth, because hey, Sarah ran into some of this last season. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, was there ever anybody you're interested in? No, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, come on, you know, we're gonna be friends. We need to talk to each other. And Natalie ends up telling her, oh, there was this guy, you know, and she gives a name. And Sarah pulls out her phone and starts, because she's her train of thought is, oh, maybe that person exists on this earth. And looks him, looks him up on some social media site, some, the internet, whatever whatever yep. it is. And goes, oh, yeah, no, he exists on this world. Oh, he's cute. Oh, he's throwing a party this weekend. Yeah. So they wind up making plans to go to Metropolis for this party is to see who this is. Yeah. All the while... Jordan and Jonathan are talking about going to the same party mm-hmm. because Jonathan has been reaching out to his ex-girlfriend. Oh, they're just friends, though. They're just friends. But this is the one that we all forgot about in season one yes. that they're now bringing back. Uh, I did, too. All right. Here we are. Reasons. Reasons. 
Okay. So they wind up having their sub story going on. Mm -hmm. All the while, you're having Lois, who had that montage of scenes early, Mm -hmm. is now transitioning into going back to the case at hand involving Intergang. And obviously, Bruno Mannheim's been been attached to this. And we're now seeing how this is all playing out because this is all now coming back to Smallville, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a weird setup. But I'm going to say this. I did not mind this. Yeah. Did not mind this at all because what you saw is when Lana Lang became mayor, Mm -hmm. the ex-mayor, Jordan Dean, or George Dean, rather, was telling Lana, like, you can't mess with the funds to Mm -hmm. clean the mold up from the high school. Like, you can't, like, you just... He confronted her last episode. Yeah. So this episode, you have George calling Lana. Yeah. And I love how Emilio Kirky was handling this episode, this moment, too. Yeah. Because she's on the phone, and she's, like, trying to translate, like, what he's saying, because he's talking so frantic, because Intergang has tracked him down. Mm -hmm. More importantly, a certain character pad by the name of? Uh, Automatopoeia. Yes. Who we do know from the Green Arrow series from Kevin Smith, and that character has appeared in a couple different uh, comics and DC Comics sure. since then. But like I say, I was completely blown away that they brought this character on the show because I was not expecting yeah, to see this. no, neither was I. So you see that Anamadipia kills mm-hmm. George Dean. Uh, in a rather vicious way, too. Yeah, holds nothing back. Yeah, like it, like uh, Kyle, uh, Lana's now ex-husband, mm-hmm. uh, is on the scene... Uh, you know, basically looking at stuff, you know, and Chrissy, the other reporter from the Smallville Gazette, is is there to do a story because, hey, it's the former mayor of Smallville found dead. Yeah, it's a big deal in a small town. You know, and, and Kyle brings up, you know, this is a really weird crime scene because he very clearly has a shotgun wound to his chest, but forensics can't find any shotgun shells in the area. Yeah, because I don't know if Pia does this weird thing with sounds, mm-hmm. and that's the weapon. At hand. So instead of just traditional physical blows, right. it's more sonic blows right. that is, is given to an opponent. So, yeah, it's a weird crime scene that they don't understand how to figure out. But Lana is also trying to translate the mm-hmm. cryptic message that George left her because before he was killed, his phone was smashed, even though Anamavia does know mm-hmm. Lana was on the other line. Waited to see who the caller ID was before he, the onomatopoeia smashed that phone. Right. Lana is basing this whole theory behind the pride of Smallville. Mm-hmm. And she's not exactly sure what this is. She confines in John Henry Irons yep. about this. I do like the pairing of Wally Parks and Amelia Kirkie. Yeah, too. that was good. Yeah, it was very, it was very cool because they're playing off, you know, as trying to figure out their own mystery because essentially – John Henry Irons is the center of all these problems. Yeah. Because as it was discovered, he has been killed on this earth mm-hmm. by Bruno Mannheim. Or someone connected to him. Exactly. So he is now this big X factor involved because whatever the other John Henry Irons did, it seems like it's now starting to trickle a little bit into Smallville. Yeah. It's just it's it's finding its way to connect to each other. So they wind up going to the mayor's office. They check behind the seal, right? Because the the uh, Lana brings up all well, the the uh, phrase. The phrase is on the seal in my, the pride of Smallville is on the is in on the seal in my office. Mm-hmm. So they wind up investigating. They find a zip drive. Yep. But sure enough, Anamathia 
is there. Well, yeah, because they go to insert it in the computer and the computer started to do the download and all that. And, like, it just starts, ru- and, the, and everything just starts rumbling. Yeah. Like an earthquake is ready to hit. But we're in the middle of rural Kansas. I'm not sure if there's any major fault lines near there. You know, so Lana starts freaking out and goes, oh, this is what happened right when, you know, I was George on, was killed. I, when George was killed, when I was on the phone with George, was there were these, these earthquake sounds and then I couldn't hear him. And then next thing you know is the sonic blast starts happening. You know, uh, John and Lana, they almost go deaf, mm-hmm. you know, getting sonic blasted. They get almost knocked out, knocked to, they get knocked to the ground, almost knocked out. You know, and then uh, Onomatopoeia takes the zip drive uh, and, and destroys the computer. Yeah. So interesting, though, they were left alive. Yeah. But I'm not mad, obviously not mad about it because there's going to be more story to tell. Yeah. But with Onomatopoeia now leaving them alive, mm-hmm. that does leave a loophole that they're going to have to come back later. I mean, also easy explanation. It's episode two. Oh, exactly. But like I said, not mad about it, just surprised. Yeah. But Because especially with the John Henry Irons connection. Right. So they'll tie into that a little later in the show. Yeah. So at the same point, Lois and Clark are taken off to interview the judge that let off Henry Miller, who mm-hmm. is the superpowered villain that is now the Frankenstein monster. Well, he was the he was the guy who got arrested previously, <laughs> let out, and they found out he oh he was let out because he was basically on death's doorbed. You know, it was like a, it was like an honorary. You know, a, hey, we're doing a nice thing for you since we know you're not going to be around much longer. Right. And but and then he got released and he had powers. So they figure out through the power of public uh, the freedom of information or whatever it is. Uh, you know, who let him out. So they go to confront this judge in Smallville under the guise of, uh, oh, we, they want to do an interview about judicial reform. Yeah. And she's all in on that. And she goes, oh, I hear you're here to interview me on judicial reform. And Lana goes, well, no, we're actually here to ask you about uh, this guy you let out who uh, was Henry, this Henry Miller, who you let out that was found that was found dead last week. Yeah. So while they're interviewing Judge Regan, members of inner gang show up. Yeah. And they're basically saying this interview is done, mm-hmm. and they are not being exactly too nice to Lois and Clark. Well, and even before the inner gang shows up, they bring up like, "Hey, you let the guy out," and she and she doesn't want to talk about it. Right. And they go, "Well, did you know he had powers? And he was the one Superman fought." Which I don't. This must the reason she's reacting like this. This must not be public information. Yeah. He's the one Superman fought last week that caused all of this death and destruction. Yeah, millions. And, and, and all this property damage that's in the tens of millions of dollars. Lois basically lays it at the feet of the judge. That, like, your name is on the records of who let this guy out. You're the reason this happened. Yeah. So it's it's quite the interesting scene that plays out. But that's why Intergang is trying to influence the judge about yeah. ending the interview and forcing Lois and Clark out, which prompts Clark... To go check for Bruno Mannheim. Well, well, uh, Lana, Lana, I keep wanting to say Lana, Lois, when they get out of the office, Lois sends him to tail the car, mm-hmm. the, to tail the car that the goons are in, because she's like, oh, those are inner gang guys. We need to find out where their base is. And as he's flying through the sky, uh, Bruno Mannheim sees a security camera footage of him in the city and goes, ah, He's in town. So he stands near his balcony and yells, hey, Superman. And Superman, while he's doing his super hearing, trying to track things down, hears it and goes to him. Yeah. And it's a great back and forth between Tyler Hoechlin and and Chad Coleman. Oh, my God. Love this sequence. Brilliant sequence. Yeah. If you're not sold about why (laughs) uh, inner gang is a big deal, 
Bruno Mannheim is a tough character to pull off. Like, because yes. a lot of times in the comics, in my personal opinion, I don't feel he's written that dynamic. Uh huh. But Chad Coleman is definitely making this character more of a fearsome force mm-hmm. instead of a. I don't want to say comedic act, but right. I always see Bruno Mannheim in the comics, and I don't take him seriously. Right. I'm taking Coleman's Bruno Mannheim very seriously. And you just see how he is just being very cold to Superman and not backing down. And Superman basically rebuttals like, yeah, I, I, I help people. And he's like, no, you don't. Nothing good has happened to this city in all the years since you've come to this planet. Yeah. Like it's this back and forth and, and Superman's just not hearing it. He's like, no, I give people hope. Yeah. You take that away. Like the paraphrase. Like it was just like yeah. this very back and forth moment. It was awesome. But while this is going on, too. Lois finds Judge Regan on the top of a building. Well, she sees her from so Lois is still on the ground after Clark takes off, and she people start freaking out, and mm-hmm. she looks up and she sees there's a person standing on the edge of the roof of the courthouse or whatever it is, and she puts two and two together that oh shit, it's the judge. Mm-hmm. So she winds up going up there mm-hmm. and is trying to talk to the judge about from jumping off the ledge, right? And during this conversation. Lois reveals that the footage that we saw at the beginning of the show, she has a diagnosis of inflammatory breast cancer. And at this point, while she's disclosing this, Clark has heard the judge and heard Lois's voice, and he's flown back. Yeah. And he's he's not, like, right next to him, but he's, listen, he's Superman. He is close enough that he can hear it. Well, as been discussed in the comics, he can he has a super frequency tuned in yeah. for Lois amongst other people. Mm-hmm. And seeing like the scene was very powerful too because yeah. you see Lois just pouring out all the emotions she's let build up, yeah. you know, since there was the end of episode one through the montage mm-hmm. footage that was at the beginning. So you do see all this pour out, and Elizabeth Tolick actually crushed this moment. Yeah, she did. And then Tyler Hoechlin, Superman, reacting to it mm-hmm. because he can't do what he wants to do. He wants to go and comfort her, but that'll give a lot away. Yeah. So it, it was just as simple as the scene was for for Hoechlin. He pulls this off and just really demonstrates, too, about how Superman to the public has to be Superman to the public. Yeah. He can't break and be Clark, yeah. the loving husband and father. Yeah. And it's it's such just a, a, a amazing performance in that aspect, too, because a lot of times we read comics and we watch the shows and we don't put that together. But you're seeing, and it's just that little thing he does because he can't do what he wants to do, mm-hmm. and it's killing him mm-hmm. that he can't go and help her, yeah, and and do something about this. But eventually, they talk the judge out of doing it. Yep. And then Superman and Lois have this moment by themselves. Yeah. Where they finally just, you know, let loose the emotions about mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. So they wind up going back to Smallville after this is done. Mm-hmm. And you do see that we did skip a lot about what the kids were doing at the party in Metropolis. Kids had a party. Nothing of value was gained. No relationships were formed. Although there was a connection made between Natalie and another kid who was at the party. She was at another school for a day. He recognized her. They had a conversation. There might be something down the road with them. We'll see. Yeah, Uh, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. You know, but they play, you know, Sarah and Jordan played beer pong, or I'm sorry, water pong, since they're kids and they're responsible. Yeah. You know, they beat the snot out of the out of the kid who was hosting. Sarah tossed water on him. Like, the water tossing on him was funny. I was like, oh, hey, ha, ha. you know, that's cool. 
but like really nothing of value was gained during the sequence. Like no, like no character progression was made. No, like the Sarah and Jordan didn't finally get together. You know what? We're going to try dating again. Like now nothing really gained, nothing lost. No, there was nothing really memorable about this. I mean, this is teenage drama that like, listen, I understand that they're kids and they do this. I just feel that we've done this. Will they, won't they for so long? Mm-hmm. I just tuned out. I'm like, I don't even care. Yeah. I just, I really don't care during yeah. the scenes. And like, like, the, like I said, the only good thing to come out of this is after they leave the party, uh, Sarah left, I think, because it was it was implied. They never said Sarah left her jacket there. Jordan flew back to get it. And they're like, oh, did you get it? And he's like, oh, yeah. And they're like, oh, did you, did you do anything? And he goes, yeah. And he froze the street. He froze the kid's car, the nice looking car, mm-hmm. and then rolled it down the hill while it was frozen on the ice. And presumably the car got destroyed. Yeah. And filmed the whole thing. Yeah. So. There's that moment to make that scene play. That, that's the payoff. Yeah, that's the payoff for that one. But how this episode ends is the boys walk back in the house from being in Metropolis. Uh, Jonathan goes, oh, just tell him he got turned around again. And Jordan goes, you know, that only, I think that only works once. Yeah. And at this moment, too, they see that Clark and Lois are at the, ta- the dinner table. Yep. And Lois tells them what's going on, mm-hmm. that she has stage three breast cancer. And you see the boys' reaction to it, and like I say, it's a very emotional scene. Too. Yeah, the, the the audio for the dialogue cuts out again, and the music just turns up. Yeah, so the boys are now aware of this, and mm-hmm. yeah, and the other thing too we have to mention is uh, after the encounter with uh, Onomatopoeia, John installed a security system at Lana's house yes. slash apartment. Yes, so and he he does he and he tells her if anything. We don't, if anything comes near this apartment, we don't want it to. I'll know and I'll be here. Yeah. And then at the same time, too, Bruno Mannheim now learns that John Henry Irons is alive. Uh huh. And the other thing, too, is the guy they brought back towards the end of the first episode. Uh, Henry Miller? Well, yeah, no, yeah, it was Henry Miller. Uh, they brought Henry Miller back to life at the end of the first episode. And it seemingly worked because the heart rate kicked in. They couldn't control him and they cut the plug and and he ended up dying and it seemingly failed yeah so there's more going on with the scheme of inner gang that we know about also uh bruno manheim work on your manners dude was funny though yeah because when clark went to leave he goes oh see there you go you know rescuing another puppy or whatever the hell he said yeah he said something he said something he said something like that but then he goes don't you dare come back into my household if you're gonna come back with this attitude and i'm like Dude, you invited him. Yeah. He didn't just show up unannounced. Like, you, I, you literally called his name and invited him. Well, he knew he knew he was flying around his building. So, I mean, he's like, what are you going to do? Just keep staring out the window? Sure, but, like, but for him to act like, oh, you came unannounced and unwanted and uninvited with this mood about you. No, he did not. Well, that, fair point. Fair point, Pat. Final thoughts on the episode? Good episode with uh, the middle part notwithstanding, you know, but I'm interested to see where this goes, and I'm interested to see how they react to it. I mean, especially with Clark, who can move planets and fly across galaxies and, and can see things at a molecular level. You know, for him to fight to, to deal with this and see how he handles this, it's going to be very interesting to see. The episode was great except for the kid's story because we've been here before. That's the easiest way to describe that, so I don't even want to get into it. And like I say, it's not against the actors involved. They did the best they could with what they were given for this, but it's it's unfortunately been recycled so many times, I just don't care. Mm-hmm. Like I say, we had Jonathan meeting up with his girlfriend from Metropolis and Reasons, but there was no payoff there. 
Yep. The Natalie story might be interesting depending on if they want to go further where the boy she met at the party tracks her down in Smallville or they or she goes back to Metropolis looking for him. One of the two things. Like, okay, so that might be something down the road. But the Sarah and Jordan thing is just the same old stuff. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. I thought Elizabeth Tolick and Tyler Holcomb did amazing on the show. I mm-hmm. thought that they had probably the strongest yes. moments of anybody. Yes. And I'm very interested to see where this whole Lana, John Henry Iron storyline is going because – we do know Luthor is on the way. Got mentioned again this episode. Yeah, so the more you say his name, the more he might appear. It's like the boogeyman. Say it three times. Mm-hmm. But Lois and or yeah, I'm sorry. Superman and Lois is still doing good work. If you haven't checked the show out on the CW, I make a point to just really stress. Go give it a shot. If you need to go back on HBO Max to check out former episodes, go do it. It will really remind you why we all love Superman. And like I say, if you like a different version of Superman, that's cool. Do your thing. But I think for a lot of us, it's truth, justice, and a better tomorrow and the, being the eternal spot of hope in the world going crazy. That is the DC Comics universe. So what can you say? That being said, here's some of that hashtag. Hashtag ODPHpod. Uncontrollable Forces. Episode 2 of Season 3 of Superman and Lois. What did you think? Let us know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sunny Hepburn. And I'm Brandy Fleets. And we're from... Book of Lies, the podcast, where we discuss liars, cheats, and thieves, scammers, and dirty, rotten scoundrels. You can tune in for new episodes every Tuesday to hear about another lowdown, dirty liar, and learn how to spot them. So that's Book of Lies podcast. You can connect with us on social media, Twitter at Book of Lies pod, Facebook, and Instagram at Book of Lies podcast. Bye. Coming back for the final segment on this edition of the OTPH Podcast Pad. What you got? Got just one thing to talk about, that being Star Wars news, and that we found out uh, who the directors are of at least one episode of the upcoming Star Wars series Skeleton Crew are going to be. Uh, and that is the gentleman who directed Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh. Yeah, the Daniels. Uh, the Daniels. Uh, uh, so the article on HollywoodReporter.com reads, quote, Newly minted Oscar winners Daniels have set a course for the Star Wars galaxy. The filmmakers behind Everything, Everywhere, All at Once are working on the Disney Plus series Skeleton Crew, sources tell The Hollywood Reporter. The series began filming over the summer and wrapped in recent months, but as with all things Star Wars, the the show has been shrouded in secrecy. With the directors unknown, the complete list of Helmers of The Mandalorian Season 3, for example, was not revealed until a trailer drop two months ahead of the premiere. The Daniels uh, directed one episode of the of Skeleton Crew. Lucasfilm could not be reached for comment on the story, which the site One Take News first reported. Skeleton Crew is the upcoming Disney Plus show that stars Jude Law and hails from uh, Tom Holland's Spider-Man trilogy director John Watts, who approached Daniels before Everything Everywhere opened. The uh, the duo filming uh, their episode last year. Uh, it centers on a group of kids lost in a galaxy trying to find their way home. The series, set in the New Republic era, is executive produced by the Mandalorian masterminds John Favreau and Dave Filoni. Quote, we love John. We love Star Wars. We love uh, love learning new tech. We love meeting new cast and crew. And we needed the days to keep our health care. So it was an easy yes, Quan wrote in an Instagram story after the news broke. Daniels, being Daniel Quan and Daniel uh, Scheinhart, 
took home three Oscars for Everything Everywhere All at Once, the multiverse-spanning hit that won them Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture Statuettes. The A24 feature also won Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Editing, close quote. Very cool addition to the Star Wars universe. That's a big get, too. That's a big get. Oof. I mean, the hottest names in Hollywood right now. I would say so, yeah. So, huge win. Really interested to hear more about this show coming. Yeah. Like I say, Jude Law being attached, that's a big deal. Yep. We haven't heard really anything about this. I mean, this no. has been, I think, the real substantial news article that I think has came our way in quite some time. Yeah, I think so. Other, other than getting like a brief mention last year during like a D24 or whatever it was. Right. And I know WonderCon, I believe, is this weekend right. in California. So right. Could, yeah, could see something maybe. Might hear... A little more. Not saying a full-blown, right, right, like, right. here we go. I suspect that'll be at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, that seems safe. I think that that's probably your easy money bet, but we'll have to see how this all plays out because con season is now kicking off Yeah, uh, very much so. I know WonderCon is this weekend. C2E2 is the following weekend. Our friends right. over at Nerd Initiative are doing big things over there. And then, I mean, all roads go to San Diego and then New York uh, in October. So we'll have to keep our ears out for that. But it's, and somewhere along that line is where I'm going with this. We'll hear some more about yeah. the show. Yeah. Just a matter of when. Speaking of movies, well, <laughs> this past week I caught Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Mm-hmm. So the Zachary Levi sequel to the hit uh, movie Shazam! I uh, came and went in the theaters. Uh, Pad, you got some numbers about this? Yeah, so for the weekend, it was number one at the box office. Domestically, it grossed $30,111,158, uh, beating out uh, Scream 6 at number two, Creed 3 at number three, uh, 65 at number four, and then Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania at number five. Uh, and so for totals, uh, currently as we record, it has grossed $31,802,486 domestically, Internationally, it has grossed thirty-four million six hundred thousand, even for a worldwide total of sixty-six million four hundred two thousand four hundred eighty-six dollars. Not exactly lighting the world on fire. Uh, no, and for comparison's sake, I pulled up the and this uh, this is all information coming to us courtesy of the folks over at Box Office Mojo. Uh, looked up the numbers for Shazam, the first one, which came out in twenty nineteen, and while I can't see like. For uh, further breakdowns, I probably have to be on the pro version for that. I'm on the free version. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see the domestic opening for the Shazam uh, one, uh, which was fifty three million five hundred and five thousand three hundred and twenty six dollars. So you take that number, like a twenty million swing, subtract it from the number it made it made this past weekend. That is a drop of twenty three million three hundred ninety four thousand one hundred sixty eight dollars. Well, I have to say this: I'm not super surprised because. There's been so much transition yes. at DC Films, and now with Peter Safran and James Gunn taking over, uh-huh. I fear that anything that is still a remaining product of the old regime, fans are going to tune out for. I'll say we might see similar things for Aquaman and mm-hmm. maybe Flash. It's hard to say. Flash, I... Flash, could, Flash could be the anomaly, and not because of Ezra Miller, but because of Michael Keaton. Yes, that's Flash the, is going to be, no pun intended, Flash is going to be the anomaly. That is going to be the anomaly. No, I, I fully agree with you because everybody's on board with Michael Keaton, and that's why they're going to go see this film. It's not Ezra Miller. 
I'm sorry, that's just my opinion. Facts, about it. facts. Uh, so I, I was talking with a guy the other day. He, he and I both agreed. We are not going to see Ezra Miller. We're going to see Michael Keaton. Right, which, I mean, hey, fans do you. But this is what we've talked with a lot of people online about at OD, or odphpodcast.com. And this is what we're hearing is just a lot of people are saying, like, I'm going to go see it because I want to see Michael Keaton. And mm-hmm. you know what? That's cool. Like, if yeah, that's, if that's yeah. what you want to do, hey, we always stress, be a fan first and worry about everything else later. Uh, just don't be toxic. Please. No. Uh, but that being said, I think the news of the transition really hurt this film. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, too, because Shazam, who is the story of a young boy that gets the powers of the gods, uh, is really a fun tale. It's one of the most classic heroes in all of comics fandom. And the fact that 2019 was such a big hit, and it's a very family-friendly film, too. Mm-hmm. Try saying that three times fast. It's it was really kind of shocking to see that it got a sequel, but it wasn't super surprising. Right. However, though, this film felt like it came and went. Yeah. And it's already going to streaming at the end of April, I believe. It's well, it's going to be on uh, on demand uh, at the end of the month, so meaning you'll have to pay for it. It'll probably be on HBO Max a couple weeks after that. But no, yeah, it's it's already going to be. So when I say on demand, it's you know you can rent it for like four ninety nine, three ninety nine, whatever it is. Or you can pay the fifteen twenty bucks to purchase it on, you know, Amazon Prime, iTunes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that being said, I did catch the film. I did not. Pat did not. So Pat is already giving me permission for spoiler free talk uh, after the countdown. So my spoiler free statement on Fury of the Gods. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's not going to light the world on fire. I feel that it had a very slow start sure and for the first half of the movie it really felt like it it was dragging a lot sure um where it could have sped up and really got to the heart of the matter however though i feel it had a very solid final act Mm -hmm. i thought that the ending of it i was perfectly fine with and the bonus the first bonus scene i think is very telling about the future of zachary levi and the new regime of dc films Mm mm-hmm so that said, let's get into a brief spoiler talk, Pat. So in three, two, one. Okay. We really didn't do a lot to reinvent the wheel, and Shazam is a tough character to really have a rogues gallery. Sure. Because other than Black Adam, mm-hmm. there really isn't any household names that you're like, oh, that right, character, right? You it's, know, it's, it's not like Batman. Or, oh, he can take on Two Face. He can take on Penguin. He can take on Joker, Killer Croc. You know, or even the list with Superman or Wonder Woman or stuff like that. Right. Because yeah. where you had the daughters of Atlas, who I had no problem with Lucy Liu playing Calypso and Helen Mirren playing Hespera. Sure, thought they were great. Really enjoyed their characters. Uh, but it was pretty much straightforward of them just going and trying to get a little revenge. Mm-hmm. on the wizard that gave Shazam their powers and mm-hmm. you know and and such. So there wasn't really like a lot of substance to this. It was just them just really trying to make do for, you know, what happened to their father. Mm-hmm. And it really just kind of started off with them just really tearing apart Shazam and his team because at this point too the Marvel family is not exactly uh the Avengers, shall we say? Sure. Uh, they're kind of known as the Philadelphia fiascos mm. because everywhere they go, they wind up um, botching a lot up. Sure. 
Uh, so they're slightly rough around the edges for being a quote-unquote superhero team. So that said, they're struggling to keep everybody together because everybody's growing up. And right. the, you, you're having everybody kind of go in different directions where Billy Batson is still sitting there trying to hold everything together. And you know how they can step away into the world. Like I always say this kind of had like a Harry Potter feel. Okay. You know, they can step away into like the temple of the gods, you know, how they sure. have like the secret clubhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they kind of turn it into their own like hangout spot. Sure. And it's kind of like a little too kiddish for me. Sure. So I didn't really see the connection. Like it really wasn't working for me. And you just see like everybody is just invested in doing something else. But as you see, the daughters are now making their way to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. fight Shazam, and completely wipe out everybody. It was a complete setup to go after the family, too, with the third sister that was mentioned in there, Athena. It just really kind of spiraled into, like, the family got basically taken out. Sure. They reunited the uh, wizard staff. Right. Was stealing their powers, and... That's pretty much like how the first half of the film goes. Okay. It's very telegraphed. There is this whole thing about Billy Batson is, you know, trying to, like, he's imagining asking Wonder Woman out, but obviously he Mm can't because, well, he's 18 and Wonder Woman is very much older. Yeah. So it's like a little fun thing because everybody forgets that when Shazam is, you know, Zachary Levi Shazam, he looks like he's a full man. Right. He's a grown adult. Yeah. They don't realize he's an 18-year-old kid. Right. With the powers of the gods. So... It, you know, he kind of he kind of brushes it off, and like it is, it's kind of an underlying theme which comes back later in the film. Sure, but I mean, it, it's it's a fun moment. It's not sure. like anything sure. you know wrong or anything like that. But you do see that he goes through his moments of self doubt because the daughters come in there completely wipe away everybody, and then with the help of the wizard and Freddie Freeman, they wind up somehow, some way, getting back on the winning side of things after basically all hope is lost. And they make pretty much a final stand in the middle of Philadelphia. Okay. Which this is where business picks up because you do see that they wind up coming back and really are ch- find a way to challenge the daughters because mm-hmm. it all comes down to Shazam has no hope and no belief that he can do this. But they find a way to do this, and the family gets involved, too. And sure. Like I say, it's a fun way to do this. They have their own little side projects going on. But at the end of the day, Shazam is more or less killed uh-huh. by taking out Calypso, who, who winds up killing uh, Hespera okay. and depowering the other sister because she's greedy because she's basically saying, I'm going to punish this world like they did our father. And she's more hell-bent in high water about making sure this happens. Mm. But you do see that they have this very cool moment at Citizens Bank Park. Oh, okay. Where the, they basically grow this tree of life, which is going to destroy the world. So what you're saying is the, the home of the Philadelphia Phillies got destroyed? Yes. Oh, that's no real loss. <laughs> Pad wants that smoke, folks. Oh, wait. They fell like how 2009 go? Oh, my God, man. Hey. No shame. Nope. No, no shame with nope. you. But they wind up Shazam defeats with a little bit of luck and a lot of help. Uh, Hespera. Okay. Or not Hespera, Calypso. But Hespera dies also too. Sure. But they acknowledge, you know, Billy is the true hero. And like I say, because she winds up having to hold a dome, and basically there's a big electrical blast kept inside this dome. Yeah. Billy is left for dead. Family finds him. Yeah. And then uh, he's buried. Yeah. 
And then he's resurrected, though, with the powers of the gods. Uh, and, of course, who's a god in the DCU? Uh, that'd be Wonder Woman. Yep. So you do see Gail Godot come there. Maybe for the last time. Yeah, repairs the staff and winds up resurrecting Billy Batson. Right. So he comes back and basically she says, yeah, you know, congratulations, you're a hero. And he's like, well, and she's like, no, don't even try, kid. <laughs> like just kind of the paraphrase. It was, yeah. it was a fun, it's a fun moment, folks. Yeah. And the family goes back to Philadelphia. The parents now know that the kids are the Philadelphia fiascos, aka the Marvel family. Yeah. Everybody gets their powers back. And like I say, there's a lot more stuff that goes on in that third act between the family just fighting these magical creatures. Um so like I say, there's a lot of fun points here. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's pretty straightforward until that end because, like I say, most of this film is kind of forgettable in the middle section. Sure. So that's why I'm not spending a lot of time talking about sure. it. Sure. But once you get down to where Shazam makes the final stand against the Daughters of Atlas, especially Calypso, that's when business picks up. Mm-hmm. And that's how it ends where basically he comes back as a hero and they now go on their way of like, okay, we're still going to be a family, but we're going to just more or less accept that we're growing up. Mm-hmm. So... There's that scene happening. However, we get to the bonus scene. This is where I kind of really want to focus on because this is the most memorable part of the film. Oh, okay. So we do have some old friends appearing in this DCU bonus scene. Oh. So we have members of Amanda Waller's unit Mm -hmm. that we last saw on Peacemaker show up. Okay. Amelia Harcourt and John Economis. Okay. Who we know uh, better as Jennifer Holland and Steve Eggie, respectively. They are coming to recruit one Billy Batson, a.k.a. Shazam, yeah. to a certain group pad. Oh, yeah? What group do you think this is? Probably the, Ju- the Justice League. Close. Oh. Because as they approach him, Amelia and John are saying, hey, Billy Batson... We have an offer from Amanda Waller you might be interested in. How do you feel about the justice? And immediately he goes, yes, I'm in. And they go, society, the JSA. And immediately he's like, yeah, um, it's not the Justice League. Is this like an avenging thing? Yeah. Taking a little shot at Marvel, which I didn't mind. Yeah. And they're basically like, yeah, you know what? On second thought, uh, I think we're out of here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So they do tease that Shazam would be joining the JSA. Right. So what I mean by this, and I the other bonus scene I'll just mention very quickly, is you still have Dr. Sylvania from the first movie. Right. Is still in jail. And Mr. Mind, the, the caterpillar with the mental powers yeah. that has been around since the dawn of time, basically with Shazam. You got to remember the time period Shazam was created in is 1940s. Yeah. So a lot of hokey shit. Yeah. So seeing that bug show up, that's not exactly the end of the world. However, basically he shows up and says, Hey, I need more time and takes off. Right. Then. So it's a fun scene, but like I say, the only scene that is really worthwhile here. And pretty much, I don't want to say for the entire movie, but let's be honest. Right. Is the bonus scene involving Peacemaker. Right. And why I say this, Pat, is James Gunn is very connected to that show. Mm-hmm. Is he not? Yes, he is. He wrote and directed every episode, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So 
the fact that he sends over people from that cast, yeah, and those characters specifically, yeah, means to me that the door might be closed for another Shazam film. And I think this was already set in stone prior to the sale going down. Right. Well, and if they go to do another movie, I know they're going to need to look for another director because the gentleman who has directed the this movie and then the first incarnation uh, was directed by David F. Sandberg. And, he's, and he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, after six years of dealing with just Shazam, he's done with superhero movies. Yeah. Well, like I said, this one... There really wasn't any substance to this one, like I said, until the end. Sure. So, like I said, that's why I'm not spending a lot of time doing a full detail. If you really want a great full detail, 3FN this week had an amazing review of it, so definitely dive in on that. But for me, this was like a 6 out of 10. Sure. 7, 10, seven maybe, but the bonus scene is what stands out to me. Sure. Because for James Gunn to sign off on this, I feel that we're going to see a JSA project coming from DC Films at some point. Some point, yeah. Not saying it's in that first slate. Doesn't no, need to be. no. But I think for Zachary Levy to be added to that cast, and they have had some members of the JSA show up prior. Now, granted, we don't know if they're going to come over and right. be in part of this new right. incarnation. Right. But I have to feel that this is a sign that this isn't the last we haven't we've seen of Shazam, but maybe the last we've seen of him solo. Yeah, maybe. Because there was some more Shazam-related news that came out this week. Yeah, so there was an article from the folks over at The Wrap uh, in which the the headline, and boy, this is a hell of a headline, quote, how Dwayne Johnson kneecapped Black Adam and Shazam 2 while trying to take over DC. Mm, that's not a good headline. No. Uh, so the article reads, quote, in The Rock's attempt to position himself at the center of the universe, he vetoed a post credit scene featuring Zachary Levi's character, Insider Say. The underwhelming $65 million worldwide debut of Shazam! Fury of the Gods is another black mark for the DC Universe. The second string superhero stable, uh, but there's another villain insiders told the rap. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who's behind the scenes maneuvering to boost another DC property, Black Adam, in which he starred, may well end up tanking both franchises, they said. To be clear, DC has a host of problems that aren't Johnson's fault, which is why Warner Brothers Discovery is attempting a reboot under James Gunn and Peter Safran. But in trying to shape Black Adam as the new center of the DC universe, a strategy that failed to bolster Black Adam and and undercut the once-promising Shazam franchise, Johnson may have kneecapped both, painting a portrait of a celebrity who put his own brand before the work. Johnson did plenty of work in public to undermine Shazam chiefly by promoting a face-off between Black Adam and Superman instead of the more canonical link between the t- the hero Zachary Levi played and the former pro wrestler's own character. Privately, he vetoed a planned post-credit scene in Black Adam which would have seen Shazam recruited by Aldous Hodge's Hawkman and other con- costumed superheroes into the Justice Society of America. The rap can exclusively can report exclusively, thanks to the dis, to the disclosures by two high level Hollywood insiders. Close quote. Well, if that is allegedly true, and I do want to stress allegedly, yep, that is not a good look. No, it's not. No, and if you're not familiar with the character of Black Adam, he is the ultimate villain to Shazam. Yep. So the fact that. We have a Black Adam film. Uh huh. They needed to tie in Shazam to him. Yes, they did. They they absolutely needed to. In fact, it was in the bonus scene of Shazam one in twenty nineteen. Yep. 
that they do mention Black Adam. There was another seat there, and they were wondering who it was for, and they never said the name, but comic fans knew. Oh, we all know who it was, and that's why I say the fact that this is coming out, that there was a refusal, allegedly, allegedly, to do the bonus scene, I think speaks volumes of the problems that that we had heard rumors about. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, it absolutely killed the franchise because, yeah. let's face it, Shazam is a great hero, but is he a real cool Stand, hero? Standalone. Stand, well, I mean, he has had some great runs in the comics. There's, sure, there's sure. no questions about it. Sure. And he has been a member of the JSA, which has definitely featured him well. But when you compare him to, like, modern heroes now, he might not be as cool as some, right. per se. right. But it's not to say he's a bad character by any means. Like I'm more, I'm super excited about the Mark Wade and Dan Mora book that's coming out. I'll, I'll probably be reviewing that because you can write Shazam very well. Mm-hmm. But I think to translate to a pop culture audience, you need to have that good balance. Right. The thing is with The Rock, and the and let's face it, The Rock is one of the most popular actors in Hollywood. Yeah. One of them. Probably the biggest action star on the planet right now. The fact that he should have been part of this, yeah, I think definitely hurt that franchise. Oh, yeah. And especially you could have gone somewhere for the sequel if you wanted to set up for it. Not saying that they would have gone away from the Daughters of Atlas. Sure, but sure. let's face it, there's there's reasons for it. Um, you know, like if he didn't want to do it, yeah, you got to go with somebody else. So, Well, I mean, if, if for those not maybe not understanding, you know, why this is so bizarre and, and just kind of like a weird situation – you know, I, I saw this comparison online, but this is like if Marvel went back and tried to do Thor 1, but decided to not include Loki. Yeah. You know, and just and Loki was just not a part of the film, you know, never included, never met, you know, briefly mentioned, maybe even hinted at, but you never saw him, you never heard from him, you never did nothing with him. Mm-hmm. And then a couple movies down the road decided, hey, you know what? We're going to do a solo Loki movie. Yeah. What? Why? Yeah. It just goes into that effect that... Uh, you know, sure, The Rock might uh, really love to do Black Adam, but you have to tie it into the source material to, to. C- to connect. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. The fact that you, that you didn't, I mean, that's one thing. But at the end of the day, it needs to come back to it. Right. There's no question about it, especially when you have a franchise that literally is waiting for you to make that happen. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Like the fact that it didn't happen, it's a shame. The fact we're hearing it was just flat out denied to do Henry Cavill, allegedly, that's that's a bigger problem that I mean you you were hearing a lot of these rumors going yeah. around and maybe there's some more substance to it. I yeah. mean there was a, a almost a confirmation quote unquote about these rumors, Pat. Uh, yeah, Zachary Levi <laughs> uh, shared a picture of the article from the rap on his own personal Instagram uh, on his Instagram stories, which he's not doing that for grins and giggles and ha ha ha. Look at this crazy stuff. No, I, th- I think there might be some truth to this. Yeah, unfortunately. And it's done nothing for me wanting to see the movie, which, which I, you know, listen, I liked the first movie, you know, the first movie was good, but I haven't seen it at all Mm -hmm. since it released in theaters. I've never bought it digitally or physically. I've never watched it on streaming. I've never even flipping channels on TV because I know it's been on TV a couple of times. Sure. Yeah. I've I've never, I've never stayed on a channel to watch it like I did this past weekend when Fast and Furious 6 was on TV. I've seen Fast and Furious 6 a hundred times, but, like, it was on TV, didn't really want to watch anything. I was like, you know what? I haven't seen this in a while. I'll watch Fast and Furious 6. You know, same boat with Shazam. I haven't seen Shazam in a while. I've got no urge to watch it. 
you know, and so part of the thing I, you know, I didn't go and see it was it nothing against Zachary Levi or, or the director or anything with DC or any, I'm not anti DC. Yeah. Yeah. No, we get you. Genuinely. I forgot the movie was coming out until I went to see Creed three with my girlfriend. Yeah. Where we were sitting in the theater and the, and the trailers were playing and they played a trailer for Shazam. And I went, Oh, right. That's coming out next week. And I would totally forgotten about it. You know, and I was like, and I kind of sighed, I'm like, yeah, I might go see it. But like at that point, I'm like, you know what? If I'm sitting here sighing and going, yeah, you know what? I might go see it. I'm probably not going to see it just because you've got everything changing with the DC films. We don't know if he's coming back. They're, for all we know, this could just be Gunn setting up the JSA down the road and we're never going to see Zachary Levi as, as Shazam again. Mm. You know, so, it, it, you know, the whole thing with DC basically getting ready to re- reset, why would I read the end of a franchise that's not going to mean jack shit in a couple of years? Yeah, it, It's killed my interest in wanting to see Aquaman. You know, I like the first Aquaman movie. That was great. But it, again, it's in the same boat. I, in fact, I think I bought this. I bought that movie. I've never watched it since I saw it in theaters. You know, so it's killed my want to see Aquaman. So I might not end up seeing Aquaman. The only one I want to see, and that's because Michael Keaton's in it, is Flash. Mm-hmm. But but that's some of the reasons I just haven't seen it. And honestly, I might not even watch it when it comes out on streaming in a couple of weeks. Here, like, here's the thing about it. If you have time and you're looking for a family fun movie. Sure. Yeah, this is your this is go that goes into it. Like there's a lot of humor, uh <laughs> granted uh a lot of questionable humor, I guess, if you yeah. have a very young audience. There's, sure. there's a certain line in there that, you know, it's it's funny, yeah. but uh, I'll just leave it at that. But I think if you're a fan of the character and you're looking for just something to kill time, yeah, this is a, gr- a good film to watch. Am I planning on going back to the theaters and watching it? No, I'm not. Sorry. Just this didn't really sell me on it. And I think a lot of fans agree with the statement I'm making here. The fact that we had the hard reset... And obviously, this project is tied with Dwayne Johnson, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And the fact we know that allegedly the divorce from him and James Gunn's vision is very evident. Oh, yeah. That why would you want to go see something that's not relevant? Yeah. Unless you're a diehard Shazam fan. And I do know a couple. I, sure. Dead serious. I, I do know a couple people that sure. are like, you know, this is their movie, which by all means. Hey, that's fine. Yeah. Like, I want to stress that, too, because I, I know that we've heard a couple times like, well, you guys say this isn't that good. It's like, that's our opinion. Make your own and go with that. Yeah. But overall, I mean, I just think that this movie hurt because of the publicity, even though James Gunn really threw it in at the end saying, right hold up, this might not be the end. Right. And I think that if people had known about that prior, right, they might have gone. I think what really does hurt this film to a certain degree, ironically, might be the Gal Gadot cameo. Mm-hmm. Just for that reason, because we know she's tagged to the Snyderverse. Right. And we do know that she's not, allegedly she's not coming back that we know of. Right. We do know that Patty Jenkins, uh, Wonder Woman 3, that's been uh, scrapped for now. Right. So... That said, her being in the cameo here might have swayed some people to go see it and not to go see it, depending on what side of the fence you are about the former films. Right. But I think the fact that at the end of the day, people are thinking, well, Shazam's gone, that definitely hurt this film. And I think, though, the word of mouth has been fairly positive, but I think in the same sense of, it has a strong ending. Sure. Like, that's the basics I heard. I mean, there's been some great reviews of this coming out. Like I said, 3FN had a great one. So Wizard had one. Our guy from JT from Beyond the Fandom has a great article up about that now, too. And, uh, you know, like, the list goes on and on. 
Well, and I think part of why this movie might not have done so well is just an unfortunate timing of when it released. Yeah. Because, you, I mean, you look back about a, you know, a month ago now, you had Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania release on February 17th. Then, literally, like a week later, you had Cocaine Bear come out February 24th. Yes. You know, then you had a couple weeks after that, but like another week after that, Creed 3 came out on March 3rd. Uh, Scream 6 came out a week after that on March 10th. Then you had 65 come out that same day, which, hey, 65 not doing as well as some of the other movies, but it's got Adam Driver in it, who's got his own fan base. Reasons why? Just listen to the 3FM podcast. Yeah. Just going to put it out there. And and so then you have a week later with all of this going on. Like, I'm looking at, you know, the, the showings that are local Regal, you know, for as we record, you know, they, they got to reissue everything everywhere all at once because, hey, it just won Best Picture. So, of course, mm-hmm. you know, they got a reissuing of Puss in Boots, Last Wish. Which, hey, fine. You know, but also they're showing Shazam Fury of the Gods. 65 is in there. Scream 6 is still showing. Creed 3 is still showing. Cocaine Bear is still showing. And Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania are all still showing. You've got folks not like you, not like me, who don't go to these movies at, at when they first drop, they wait a couple of weeks. They go with some family. They go with some friends, you know, when they got the money because they can't afford to go every week. I think what it ultimately was, was it just fell in a really loaded month of the year, which we haven't seen in quite some time since pre pandemic, Mm. where there's a lot of movies out at the same time. I think if it had chosen maybe a better month where it wasn't so loaded with so many, like literally all, all of those movies I just listed came out within four weeks. No, I mean, that's a great point. And that's a loaded lineup that it just, hey, listen, some people can't afford to see everything. And when you've got Creed 3, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumini, which Marvel's got their own fan base, and obviously the kids are going to want to go see that. Sure. Scream 6 and everything else. It looks like Shazam was the one that fell by the wayside. The people are like, hey, you know what? I can't see everything. That's the one I'm going to skip. I think it's a perfect storm, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean... That's all ultimately because I think just the DC fans that usually turn out didn't. Yeah, I think just only the diehards that read the comics, which like listen, that's the, that, that was the reason I go because I do read some Shazam. I'm and I, I I'm seriously I'm plugging the the new book that's coming out with Mark Wade and Dan Moore. That's gonna be absolute fire when it comes out. Um, but overall, like I say, this movie I think just was hurt by it, and I think the rocks actions involved in it. I mean, I think we just put the, the allegedly allegedly allegedly. Put the nail in the coffin. And then now I think the word of the bonus scene is going to come out, but I think it's going to be a while before we see Shazam come back, which is okay. If we see him at all. If we see him, but I think we're going to see a JSA project before long. Maybe in the same vein of when they did the Justice League of America comic in the New 52 when it was the team Amanda Waller set up to go take down the Justice League in case. I, I I think the bonus scene was simply James Gunn's kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, we're going to do a Justice Society of America something. Yeah. Whether it's a show, whether it's a movie, we'll see. Because let's not forget, Peacemaker Season 1, you know, the Justice League showed up, although admittedly we only saw Ezra Miller and Jason Momoa. I don't fully expect either of those two actors to show up in Season 2 of, of Peacemaker. Miller, no. No, you know, but but so I think what this was was because of the way it went, where you, from what you said, where they just, well, you know what, never mind, they walked out. This is just James Gunn's way of saying, hey, we're going to do a JSA movie. Yeah, that's and that's the only takeaway I had from this film personally. Like I said, everything else is just kind of blends together and, and goes away, but that's why I say go check out some other reviews of the show too. Like, you can compare it with mine, because like I say, I think it's like a six to seven range of a film. I thought the third act was very strong, and I just didn't care for anything else that began. But like I say, I read Shazam comics, so I'm going to like it a little more than most. But 
that's just me. And like I said, if you really want some great uh, podcasts that covered it, like I said, Caption Life did some work with it too. Beyond the Fandom, So Wizard, 3FN. 3FN, 3FN was the only podcast I know brave enough to cover 65. Oy. And like I say, salute to those guys for doing that because I will tell you what. I sat there and I was like, this movie looks tough and i mean I, I was kind of i was kind of in for it when i saw oh it's adam driver okay maybe yeah same, I'll, maybe, same maybe i'll see this and then the trailer played i'm like ooh, this is a skip yeah i just could not pull myself to do it i was like you gotta be kidding me like i i can't do this one willingly it just me it just yeah. didn't it did nothing for me even though it had adam driver in it that's mm-hmm. the only thing with that but that's why i say you listen to these shows you get your opinions make your own and if you like the movie like listen hashtag od page pod let me know what you love about the movie. I like I said, I enjoyed it for what it was, but uh, I'm not saying this is on my top five echelon of all time. Mm-hmm. But you know, like I said, if you loved it, hit me up and let me know why. If you didn't like it, hit me up and let me know why. And what did you think about that bonus scene? Let's talk about that because I think that's a bigger implication than anybody is even talking about. That said, Pad, let's end this show like we always do for the Entertainment Edition. What's at the comic shops this week? Uh, so this is what I'm reading this week from the comic shops uh, from DC. You've got Nightwing issue number 102. Tom Taylor still writing, so it should be amazing. Yeah, oh, my God, yeah. Uh, you've got Superman issue number two from Joshua Williamson, which issue one, if you have not read, what the fuck is wrong with you? Seriously, might be the best Superman issue I've read in quite some time. But the, yeah. work, the work between... Williamson and Taylor yeah. right now yeah. alone. Yeah. We're not even talking about action comics, which is awesome too. The Superman universe is booming right now. Yeah, it is. Oh my God. Yeah, it is. Uh, and then switching over to the Marvel side of things, well, Disney specifically for this one from Greg Weissman, Gargoyles issue number four. You know, I'm fucking here for this. Uh, also going to be reading from the folks over at Marvel this week. Amazing Spider-Man issue number 22. Zeb Wells, good God, this whole thing they're doing with Spider-Man right now is amazing. Can't wait to see where they go with it. Yeah, this is this is very polarizing amongst the fans. I want to mm-hmm. put this out right now. Oh yeah, there's I, there's a very I understand, <coughs> very strong one way or another with this. I understand. Uh, and then for the folks over at Star Wars, uh, Star Wars Darth Vader issue number thirty-two from Greg Pak. Uh, love the Darth Vader line. Doesn't matter who's writing it. It is always amazing. Yeah, for me, the comic shops this week. Uh, Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants. Uh, like, listen, I'm a big fan of the Age of Apocalypse storyline, so the fact they're doing it with Sinister, I'm here for. Uh, in fact, if you're interested in more of Age of Apocalypse talk, uh, make sure you're following the caption life uh, fairly soon. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm. Uh, for me, though, also on my list, Comixology Originals, one of the best lines, and I know a lot of people are like, well, it's digital. It's not at the comic shops. A lot of them do make their way over via Dark Horse Comics. And this is one series that is coming. Uh, season one is out uh, for Dark Horse. And this is one that they just wrapped up season four. And that is Ask for Mercy, The Circle of Time, number six. Richard Star- Starkings and Abigail Jill Harding. Phenomenal series if you really like some sci-fi work, Pat. Okay. This is something that, like I say, sci-fi fantasy. Uh, I'm just going to show you just a snippet of the art here. Ooh, okay. But there's a bigger shot, like I say. Oh. And I'm going to get to the one here because this is all in parlay points. Look at that artwork. That is nice. Yeah, Harding nice. Harding does a very quick shot of the pre-moments before a very big battle goes down. So this ties up the storyline that they've been building all season. And it ends on a very interesting note. Like, there's a lot of things that are happening. Mm-hmm. So if you've been following the story of Alizane and Mercy and the Battle of Tataris, it's been wild. Yeah. And they do a lot of time jumping. So there is some moments that you that if you're jumping in cold, it might be rough just to catch up. Sure. But there's enough here that you understand who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. 
and then just how everything unfolds, it's a really solid issue, and the ending will throw you for a little bit of a loop. Uh, so I'm interested to see what we're doing after this. I don't know, but what can I say? Comixology Originals is a great line. You definitely want to go check that out. Does I say digitally? It's well worth the time doing. And then when they hit the, sh- the comic shops, like Scott Snyder and Francis Manipal is clear, mm-hmm. is hitting, you need to go buy, you know, like five, seven, ten copies. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Also hitting the comic shops and digital uh, stores this week, Valiant Entertainment is back. More importantly, I should say the king is back. And no, I'm not talking about Nick Gage. I'm talking Exo Man of War Unconquered, number one. Becky Clunan, Michael Conrad, Liam Sharp. The book brings back Valiant's flagship character, and I do mean seriously. If you're talking about all of Valiant Entertainment, Valiant Comics, in my opinion, Exo Man of War is their franchise guy. Mm-hmm. I know that Bloodshot is there and is very high profile in his own right, but it's Exo all day, every day. And this is a very cool story, and how they're bringing back Arik and these. Uh, I almost say symbiotic, but it kind of feels like that. His very unique suit, Shanhara. Mm-hmm. How they're bringing that back and the story they're setting up, like this feels like an epic tale. And I don't like throwing that word around because I think it gets used overused a lot as epic. Sure. But this really feels that sense that they're building up for something major here. And there's like this weird prestige feel to it, in my opinion, but I think a lot of that has to do with Liam Sharp's art, which is just phenomenal, Pat. Like, I'm going to show you some of this right now. So, like I say, there's like a certain vibe to it that, that like, it's not just your average comic. And like I say, I always love seeing Valiant Entertainment back on the shelves. I'd love to see more of it personally. One of my favorite universes, and just the fact we got EXO back, we do know that there is going to be some more coming out, so definitely want to make sure you pick that up at the shops this week. Over at Image Comics via Black Market Narrative, we're talking Massive vs. Pad. Ooh. And the conclusion of Inferno Girl Red number or book one, number three. Ah. Matt Groom, Erica Durso, uh, put the final touches on one of the best debut series you're going to read. Uh, albeit, though, this is how the Kickstarter is broken up. So if you have the Kickstarter, which is uh, they did have back on sale. They did have some copies. Ah. So if you're looking for that, I did put the link in on Parlay Points. You can definitely go check that out. I don't know if they have any left at, at recording time. So, you know, take that into consideration. But even so, get to the local comic shops and go buy all three issues that are out right now if you can still find issues one and two. Book three, though, caps off everything for Cassia Costa. Phenomenal story top to bottom. Artwork is on point. The writing is is very cool. A lot of surprises happening here. And seriously, I need to have uh, book two announced sooner than later i know matt listens to the show so uh he knows that we're waiting on book two uh announcement i wouldn't doubt we might hear something by san diego at the latest just putting that out there putting the karma out in the world i don't know anything official surprisingly but i'm just gonna say this you definitely want to make sure you go out and buy it it's a hell of a book and you definitely will not be disappointed i have more people dming me about massiverse stuff nice uh especially this book that we might have to do a breakdown episode at some point of either this or no one, so stay tuned for that. Over on the Boom Studios side of things, and you know I love Boom Studios, one of the best lines, uh, best companies out there right now, and one of my favorite books on the shelf, bar none, Grim Number 9 is hitting the shelves this week. Ooh. Stephanie Phillips, Slaviano, the story of the insane life, or afterlife, I should say, of Jessica Harrow is just getting more crazy and crazy. A lot of twists and turns are going on right now, 
and this issue does not let down by any stretch of the imagination. The end game is going to be freaking wild. Did not expect to see what I was seeing in this issue. And if you have not checked out Grimm, I like I give it my highest possible recommendation. I love the series. And fingers crossed, we might be talking a little more about Grimm on the show in the upcoming weeks if mm. if, uh, if Twitter is correct about something. So stay tuned. Dot dot dot. Also, Boom Studios. And you know, um, we have become full-fledged Power Ranger fans here at the ODPH. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers 106, Melissa Flores, Simona D. Gianfelice. This debut run they've had uh-huh. has been absolutely on point each and every time. I can't stress it enough. They're six issues in now, or five tech. Well, yeah, six issues in. They have absolutely made an impact out the gate. Mm-hmm. This is a legendary run. I know I'm saying this super early because they started at issue 101. It's now issue 106. Yeah. The stuff that is going on here and the reinvention of Rita Repulsa, which is not a spoiler. Right. It's outright. It's been out long enough. What Flores is doing with the writing here and the artwork is just absolutely crushing it. I'm showing Pad some right now that, you know, D. Gianfelice is doing. Like, this is the stuff that gets fans into series and into universes. And I can't stress it enough. I recommend this book all the time. I know Tom from Off the Cuff Gaming has always been preaching this. And this is coinciding with, obviously, the Netflix announcement of the 30th anniversary of Power Rangers. Yes. The, the uh, the show is co- the, the special, yeah. The special is coming, which we might be doing something for that as well. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, like I say, th- when you read the comics like this, though, this is what makes you get into these universes. And for me, I, I, I admit I did this with Kyle Higgins and Ryan Parrott's run, and now I'm telling you, Melissa Flores is absolutely crushing this book. Like, seriously. And the final panel of this book if you're a Power Rangers fan, you're going to be freaking out. Bar none. There's, there's no question about it. I read it. Tom, I think, read it. Might have been roughly around the same time. And the message went, dude, last page. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I know. And it was just like exclamation points. Mm. That's how good this run has been. So, listen, can't stress it enough. You need to go get this. Also, last but certainly not least, damn them all, number six, Simon Spurrier, Charles Adlard's uh, – Supernatural Tale is ending its first arc. Ooh. It has been announced it is going to be an ongoing series, so congratulations to them. Nice. This book, if you're a fan of John Constantine-style stories, this is up your alley. Ellie Hawthorne is such a unique character, and I have to laugh because the di- the whole story has been based around uh, finding out the mystery of her uncle's death. Mm-hmm. Well, we find out what happens. And it fits into the vibe of this story. It is one that fans of the series are going to be talking about. And if you are looking for a real cool book with just, like I say, the Hellblazer vibe to it, just doing its own energy, though, this book is for you. I'm a big fan of it. I can't recommend it enough. And like I say, you definitely want to check this book out. And the first arc, especially when it's in trade paperback. So as we always say, make sure you're going out, support your local comic shops wherever you're at. And make sure you're going out and supporting your favorite independent comic podcast because we all get to do a lot of big work to make sure you know what books to pick up and go talk to some creators. Like our guy, Brian Wayne, cheers to comics. 
and a plenty, plenty more. So definitely make sure you're going out and getting some comics and hit us up on the hashtags. Hit up Pad. Let him know what you're thinking of Superman too. Yeah. I definitely need to see more Pad Superman conversations. I know we're we're gonna be trying to see if we can win some money to buy Pad the Age of Apocalypse on Miss. I'm not paying that on my own. I know he's not doing it on his own. So I know Julio from Contrarians is definitely in uh, to see this happen. So when when we come across a copy, we're giving it to Pad. Pad will be uh, talking about that on air because uh, he he does not know what he's missing with that one. But that being said, for anything and everything that is the ODPH, you can find it at odphpodcast.com. That's it for this week, Pad. Thank you, as always, for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening, ODPH Society. We appreciate you giving the time, the energy, and the five-star reviews that have been coming in lately. It does mean a lot to us. That's it for the ODPH Podcast, better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. We'll see you next time.